This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So today on the Becoming Educated podcast, I am with Phil Naylor. Phil is a deputy head teacher and has worked in education for over 20 years. Phil is an expert in research and evidence-based practice with CPD. Phil has written for TES, Schools Week and the Royal Society of Chemistry. He presents regularly at conferences around the topics of behaviour and CPD. Phil created the outstanding Nailers Natter over 18 months ago by starting conversations with teachers on all areas of education. Nailers Natter is sponsored by John Cat Education and is one of my favourite weekly listens. Phil, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great to be here, Darren. Very strange to be on the other side of this conversation. I know. I was thinking that. Thinking that it must be must be very different being the interviewee rather than the interviewer. So, just to, to kick us off, Phil, could you share a little bit about you and your career so far in education, and then what prompted you to to start Nailers now? Uh, right, well, this is great because I mean, normally I don't like I don't talk about much. I mean, occasionally on the podcast I lapse into uh, anecdotes from my own career. So it's a good chance to talk, you know, to bore listeners for about two minutes on the potted history of my career so far. So uh, believe it or not, I didn't start as a teacher. Obviously, we get a lot on the podcast that always say, you know, lots of people in my family have been teachers, all my friends have been teachers. I don't know any teachers. There's nobody in my family's ever been a teacher. I am the only one. And I didn't go straight into teaching. And uh, believe it or not, and I discussed this with Carl Hendrick uh, on a recent podcast that we did. I used to work in football, Darren. I used to be, uh, I used to be a full-time football coach, which people to see me now would not believe. So um, I took all my coaching badges. I worked at Wigan Athletic, I worked at Blackburn Rovers, I worked at Burnley, I worked all over the place. I even did my A licence, which you don't like to talk about, he says, with it staring at him in his office here on the wall. So I did all that first and then started teaching in about 2001 when somebody had said, well, you know, coaching, teaching, and it was kind of that time when it was um, sort of the Labour government of, right, well, get yourself in, you know, those who can teach, that sort of those sort of slogans. So I thought, well, yeah, I'll have a go at this. And I ended up working in an all-girls, massively high-achieving school uh, in Burnley, which I absolutely loved. I mean, it was a magical place. And I learned under what has been the greatest head teacher that I've worked under. She was absolutely fantastic. I'm still in touch with her now. I still speak to her quite regularly. So, um, yeah, that was brilliant to learn under her. I was the last head of Year 11 as well at that really important uh, really important school and then the school kind of amalgamated with another sort of equally brilliant school the boys school and it was really valuable to see having taught all girls and coached football to boys and then trying to educate boys as well so um i learned from some of what i would call um what you might call darren some of the more canny teachers um teaching the boys there and I still use some of their maxims now. <laughs> you know, but a classic example of that would be sort of leadership lessons from uh, there was, you know, ignore every message first time it comes because if it's important, they'll find you. Which I'm not necessarily saying I subscribe to, but I learned a lot from the kind of characters of the staff room there. Um, I was lucky to be promoted. Um, I ended up being the first head of year seven in that school, promoted to assistant head quite young-ish uh, at about 31. I've always seemed to get fairly early promotions, not because I'm competent, just because when I was about 24 or even 30, I looked about 50. So people just thought, you know, he's been around for a long time. It's probably about time we gave him some uh, promotions. So assistant head at 31. Um, yeah. And then when did the school that was at, got a new head teacher, slightly different direction. So, um, you know, went for that for a couple of years. And then 
applied for another job which was outside of the area which I lived. It was over over here where I am now in sunny Blackpool because it was a chance to work under the legendary Stephen Tierney, um, leading learner, as people may know him. And I enjoyed absolutely every day learning under him. So he gave me loads of different responsibilities from being an SLE um, to being, you know, leading the learning house, from being in charge of NQTs, ITTs, to doing a TDT hub, the research school. So, yeah, at the height of that popularity, I was kind of getting itchy feet there and I wanted to get back into kind of whole school leadership and being back in school full time. So, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the benefits of running that hub that I was talking about is I got to work in all the Blackpool schools. So I learned loads, built up loads of great teams, worked with lots of great leaders. But the, the school, the favourite school that I visited was South Shore Academy. And every time I visited there, I thought, you know, I love the head teacher. He's brilliant. The teachers really inspired me. And, and I love working with the Blackpool kids anyway. So when a chance came to apply for that job, I just thought, I've got to have a go at this one. So, yeah, I was very, very fortunate to be appointed back end of last year to that. It's been a, an unusual start to deputy headship, let's say that. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to the, the next stage uh, of the career yeah, so there we go. That uh, sounds sounds brilliant, and and I can just share with you that, that our career path sounds very similar. Although I'm I'm quite quite a bit behind. I've not I've only been in education for eight years, but I also worked in elite football before. I, oh, before I tell us more, teacher. Darren. Tell us more. Up it, I was a I was a youth coach at Aberdeen Football Club um, oh, for a, for a for a couple of years before, and then I coached football in New Zealand before I came back to become a teacher of physical education, so I was listening to you say that, and I'm like, that sounds exactly exactly like the journey that I had, maybe Aberdeen's not as illustrious as Wigan, ha- Wigan has been in the past, but <laughs> It was certainly as illustrious as Wigan was when I was there, let me tell you <laughs> Well, Aberdeen, Aberdeen's famous uh, fam- famous European Cup win against the mighty Real Madrid in the 1980s is, we still hang on that <laughs> Quite right, too. Quite right. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I was doing both jobs for quite a while when I first started teaching. So I kind of ran them parallel um, up until when, you know, the, the classic of when children came along and it was right, make a choice. With child one, I did continue for quite a bit and I can vividly remember the moment where I made the choice. So there's a friend of mine who won't be listening, who's now the head of youth at Burnley. And we kind of went along the same path and we we're both at Blackburn at the time. And I was asked by um, Gary Bowyer, who I'm trying to think where mm-hmm. Gary is managing now. I forget. I don't know. <laughs> you can edit that in somewhere, Darren. Pretend that I knew where Gary was managing. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, he said, do you want to come down and, and coach the reserves in the morning? So I thought, well, yeah, great. So I'm there at Brockhall helping him to coach the reserve team with like Lorenzo Amoruso and people like that, you know, in the team. And thinking, right, I'm going to go back to school on Monday and do detention for year eight. So it's like, which way do you go? Now, um, my friend who's the head of youth at Burnley he went one way and he's continued in that he's a full time football person now you know, he's the kind of person that wears flip flops and socks you know that kind of person and then I've gone the complete other way uh, into sort of full time education but I still do kind of touch base with football on a daily basis because my head teacher who will be listening because he's a big fan of uh, listening to podcasts he's the manager of FC United so Neil Reynolds is uh, very much full time right. football and our head teacher so we, we do get quite a lot of football talk at school he must be a very busy man coaching FC United and, and running a, a busy school yes oh he is he is but I mean he just he just takes it all on his stride ah, I, can, I, can, I can just imagine well it was wonderful wonderful divergent in the world of football I could chat football all day with you Phil but let's get let's get back to yeah let's get the listeners let's back, get back to, let's bring them back for those that don't necessarily like football um, so just towards the end there you, you've started Naylor's Natter so how did you become, come to start Naylor's Natter and then how has that progressed how is it different today from when you started 18 months ago 
right, well, I love this question because I just thought, how is it different to when it started? And the simple answer is it isn't. <laughs> you know, it's pretty much the same as when it started. I mean, the only thing that's probably improved slightly is the uh, the quality of the audio. So, I mean, for listeners' benefit now, Darren is on video. I am absolutely not on video on this Skype conversation, <laughs> but my my rig is set up here. So I've got a big microphone and all of that, that that I'm fortunate to be to be given by the Teacher Development Trust. But it hasn't really changed. So in terms of how it started, it was quite a simple idea, really. So at the time, I was working at the research school in Blackpool with Simon Cox, and and we discussed about how we could improve our reach and how we could get to to more people with the kind of evidence and research and CPD message. So you know. We, in terms of the name, which, you know, some people uh, like, some people uh, <laughs> think it's quite an interesting name, it was because we kind of wanted to spread the knowledge of evidence and research, but we we're a little bit careful not to attach it to Blackpool Research School in case it wasn't very good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Simon Cox and uh, Stephen Tierney as well, obviously aware of this, and it's like, yeah, well, you, you could call it the Blackpool Research School podcast, but, you know, if people don't want to listen to it, people don't want to come on it, no one's interested in it, we don't want to kind of ruin the reputation that they've built up for it. So I put myself my head above the parapet and said, yeah, by all means, call it after me. And, and me and the kids at home came up with uh, the, the snappy name. So it hasn't changed that much. We're still out trying to just spread as much knowledge of evidence and research-based practice as we can, speak to people that interest us. And really, it's just for me, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. You know, if, if I'm getting something from speaking to the person on the other end of the phone and it's improving my practice, then hopefully anyone else who's listening to it is feeling the same. And that's the kind of message. I mean, I didn't even look. I mean, you're involved in conversations that we have on, on Twitter and things. I never even looked about, you know, listener figures or stats or reach or anything like that because – not because I'm not interested, it's great that people want to know about it, but just I'm doing it to try and help myself. And if that helps me, then I'm sure it'll help other people as well. Um, in terms of the style of it, I mean, you're the, you're the same. I grew I grew up, that sounds ridiculous. I came up to this listening to, um, you know, the guru of podcasting, which for me is still uh, Craig Barton. Mm -hmm. And and his style is very much, he's got his ideas and he wants to talk about his ideas and he almost wants to kind of have you know, an argument around key points with the uh, with the person he's interviewing. I was going for much more of a deliberate sort of <laughs> showing me age now, a Simon Mayo sort of Michael Parkinson style of right, I don't know anything about the thing you're talking about. Please, can you tell me about it? So I do think carefully about the questions, and then let the guests talk about it. So it's really uncomfortable and unusual now, Darren, that I'm actually talking about myself. So <laughs> you know, I always let the guest do the talking. So it doesn't change that much. Um, yep. But hopefully, you know, uh, it's going to try and continue to evolve as we move through. Certainly, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the double episodes you've had coming out over lockdown. It's been it's been a real treat. And as I said at the start, it's something that I really really enjoy listening to. And it's one of the, I'll be honest with you, Phil, it's one of the factors that caused me to to believe that I could do a podcast as well. And and, and here we are chatting. So it's it's a wonderful wonderful turnaround for me. So you mentioned like earlier on there that you want to learn from the guests and, and soak it all up. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Who's been possibly your most interesting guest that you've had and why is that? Yeah, again, it's a great question. And I want to thank everybody who's come on the show because particularly the ones that came on, and you, you'll find this, Darren, when you were starting as well, the people that came on at the start, you know, when you had 
you know, it was just an embryonic kind of idea. And people said, yep, I'll get involved in that. So all the people that came on the first few episodes and, and, and said, yep, by all means, we'll have a go at that. So thanks to everybody who's been involved. The standout ones are not because, you know, they're better than us. It's just in terms of the effects that they had maybe on me and on listeners from what kind of feedback that we get from Twitter and things like that. So for me, the standout um, is Jill Berry's. So Jill Berry's book, which is making a leadership leap, uh, leap was given to me or gifted to me by uh, Stephen Tina, who I mentioned before. And it's kind of one of those moments in your life where I can distinctly remember him giving me that book and it'd been knocking around on the tail between me and Simon Cox. We used to face each other again, a dated reference, but Smith and Jones, we used to look like, you know, sat across the desk from each other, like face to face. You wouldn't be able to do that now for social distancing. But anyway, so we were sitting around the book and then just one day I thought, oh, I'll pick this up and we'll take it back. I read it cover to cover twice within the next couple of days. And I just thought this really started me thinking about, because at the time we were three days in school, which I'll, I'll come to talk about in one of the later questions, two days out and about doing CPD in other schools. But that, that kind of drove getting back into helping to lead a school. So when I got a chance to to kind of interview her, I really pursued her and said, please, would you come on and speak to me about this book? It's really important. Um, but, you know, the, the chance to talk to her and, and it showed me that this could be achieved. So that's the real standout one for me. But others, if I've got time to mention, would be, um, speaking to my education hero, which which is Doug Lamov. Everybody who knows me knows how much uh, how high esteem I hold Doug Lamov in. Um, also speaking to people like Thomas Gusky. I mean, I, I love that he is the nicest man I have ever spoken to. I mean, I was so nervous about that one, Darren, because we reference all of his work through the Teacher Development Trust, and all of his papers have been kind of cited. And then it was just just a chance, you know, conversation. I put one out on Twitter and said, "Would you?" And he contacted me. He was so generous with his time. So interesting. Professor Michael Young as well, uh, of powerful knowledge. Um, I mean, that, that was interesting. You know, I said before that I pretend not to be any kind of expert in, in anything, but my, but Michael Young did keep firing questions back at me. Um, <laughs> and he kept asking me my opinion on a few points, and I thought, oh, I, I don't dare give it. Anyway, I did give it, and he agreed with me. And I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, I felt 10 feet tall after that. <laughs> that really must did. have been amazing, yes. Oh, it was. But I, I must, you know, same as you, Will, recognize the generosity of all the guests and and the team of people that we've now got working on Nailers Natter because we were chatting off air beforehand about you know now while we are in, in unusual times it's a little bit maybe easier to do some of these kind of conversations but when it's we're right in the thick of it trying to get podcasts out every single week and we did commit to doing it weekly so I couldn't have done it without you know Catherine Morgan David Weston I've got Beth and Michelle Ian Maria all the TDT. I've got Emma Turner's been doing some podcasts for us as well. And just a special thank you to Oliver Caviglioli for designing the logo. He did that for free, off his own bat, didn't even, you know, ask for anything in return for that. He is an absolutely tremendous author and a lovely man. So, yeah, thank you to him as well. No, that's, that's wonderful. I would, I'd agree in what you said about the, the early adopters of you. Like, I was... I was so privileged by the by the caliber of people that were willing to chat to me when I was just a no one. You know, I was actually quite quite lucky when I started because we had a TEDx event at our school, actually in our school, and uh, I just started throwing uh, what do you call it business cards at people and say get back to me when it be on, and they all did, which was wonderful. So yeah. that was that was that was truly brilliant. And um, so, kind of, you spoke a little bit about Jill Berry there. And you've you've mentioned a couple other like truly wonderful educationalists. So, what guest has has caused you to most rethink your own practice? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting, that one, because I'm going to go to the most recent one. So, I mean, I've got one that's out today. This is not a shameless plug for my own podcast. I'm not trying to do that. It's just that I've spoken to uh, the authors of the, the Power of Culture, so it's the new Michaela book, which is out. I thought it was out today, but as we record this, it's out next week. But just speaking to them about the way that they organize their school and the things that they believe in in their school. So I've interviewed Katie Ashford and Pratesh Raichura, who I've interviewed a couple of times now, um, about what they stand for, what they do, how they do it. And I mean, those interviews in terms of changing practice, when I was speaking to Katie, I just wanted to get back in the classroom. I mean, we're still in school regularly. We were discussing this before, but just, you know, having that interaction with the children in the classroom and doing things, you know, at a whole school level, it was just fantastic to speak to them and she's got a she's done a chapter about uh, knowledge organizers so something we did in the research school was put a lot of evidence-based practice out there she's done a chapter called um knowledge organizers proceed with caution and you know they were the architects of the knowledge organizer and it's really interesting to speak to katie about how they came up with the idea how it's kind of become one of what dylan william calls you know the lethal mutations and everybody's doing it in a totally different way so in terms of changing practice recently that Michaela book will change people's practice. You know, that is a really uh, seminal book in my view. It would prove to be hopefully the future. Also, anytime we speak to Tom Sherrington, the, the Rose and Shines Principles of Instruction and that and that book really got me back to thinking about, I was going to say back to basics, but back to thinking about my own teaching in my classroom. And also a controversial one, Darren, maybe, because um, Paul Dix, I think it's fair to say, possibly divides opinion mm-hmm. um with people not as a not as a as a man because i mean he was again really generous with his time fantastic to speak to on the phone couldn't do enough to try and you know put me at ease and talk about those kind of things but i haven't released it yet not because i'm sitting on it for any other reason than it's about behavior in schools and about what kind of things you can do and one thing i would say about behavior is that i think that the, the issue of behavior is quite divisive and people have got their opinions but i've worked across lots of different schools that i alluded to you know an outstanding girls high school with about a 90 percent you know a star to see as it was in those days pass rate to schools in different contexts you know through the tdt work and the research school work and a lot of behavior is quite contextual and there isn't a one-size-fits-all so I think that the interview with Paul really started to make me think, and I, I do like to speak to people. I know you do as well, Darren. Mm-hmm. People outside of the kind of the areas that I'm used to or expert in or have experience of, and that's the reason why we've diversified the team a little bit in terms of interviews. Because, you know, like you, I want listeners to get a full range of experiences of different people rather than just things, you know, in my kind of echo chamber. <laughs> exactly, that was. That was lovely, and I'm looking forward to reading the the power of culture. I've got that that in pre-order, but I would agree. I, I love how you mentioned lethal mutations there. I think that that's coming up quite a bit in a few podcasts that I've got coming out soon. So that will lead into that. That lovely. So thank you, Phil. Um, you mentioned that your links and your team there. So you have close links with with the Teacher Development Trust. Um, could you share what you used to do for them and, and, and how you work with them now? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, again, one of the most nervous things I ever had to do was conduct an interview with David Weston because those who, I mean, I've been on David's um, CPD Connect events this week and he's just amazing. In terms of a communicator, there are very few people better than David Weston. I mean, I watched him many times before I went to work with him. I listened to him on various different, you know, talks. And and then when he phoned me up to interview me, it was just like, oh, I've never been so nervous. But what happened was um, in the Blackpool Opportunity area, there's a couple of projects that came through. One was the research school and one was the teacher development trust um, hub. So before I get into what I kind of did with the TDT, 
Simon Cox and I got kind of appointed across those two projects to run across the town. And what we had was we had a research school with lots of evidence-based practice, but no real access to schools other than, you know, links we could generate ourselves. And then we had a TDT hub, which was a kind of signed in guaranteed working with senior leaders across 10 schools to overhaul their CPD program. So it was right. We've got a mechanism for helping people to improve their CPD, but not any content necessarily because TDT don't really supply content. They just supply processes, structures, and ways of doing CPD. And we've got a research school with a lot of content, but we can't get into schools. So we thought, oh, this seems to work quite well. So I remember talking to uh, Sir Kevin Collins at our launch event about, we've got research and evidence, but we can't get into school. We've got CPD structures to get into school, but no real content. That might work. So we put the kind of two projects together, and, and Simon and I kind of ran those across the school. So in terms of working with the TDT, I was the one of the loftily titled expert advisors, which essentially meant that you went into schools, met with, and you know because of the, the, the importance of this hub, you met with senior leaders, you met with assistant head teachers or deputy head teachers who were leading CPD across the school in all 10 schools. Now you can imagine how brilliant that is, Darren. Mm-hmm. You know, getting the chance to go and speak to these people who've got their own experiences, who've got their own ways of working, who've got lots and lots of great ideas that they can share. But also because David thinks about things in such detail, you know, you had built in forums, you had built in conferences, you had built in all of this kind of networking opportunities as well. So in terms of what did I do, um, I went in and helped design CPD programs conduct audits with what um, the schools were doing at the moment, looked at what areas of focus they'd got to improve the school and kind of match the best CPD to that and help them to deliver some of that as well. So in terms of that was a three-year project. I remember when I started it in 2017, it said, yeah, this will finish in March 2020. And I thought, March 2020, you know, that's like the future. That'll never happen. But it, it pretty soon became March 2020. And yeah, I think March 2020 will be remembered for lots of reasons rather than the end of the TDT hub. But I've been very fortunate that they've kind of continued to work with me. So you talked about early adopters and people who believed in it from the start. David and the team were those people, you know, they said, right, we'd like to get involved in this. We'd like to help, you know, sponsor that. You know, not in terms of financial things. None of us are doing it for that. It was just around equipment or, you know, because at the start, I should have mentioned this earlier on how it's changed. Shout out to Ollie Lovell, who runs the podcast uh, over in Australia, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he, he just messaged me on Twitter and said, yeah, I really like your podcast, but have you thought about using a microphone? Because at that time, I was I was propping up the phone into the uh, the i into the iPad microphone, and it wasn't sounding the best. So in terms of, you know, thanks for that, Oi, for a start. And David just said, well, you might want some decent equipment, so some headphones, a microphone, those kind of things. But they've backed it every single week, Darren. You know, every single week the team are in the office, even now. You know, doing interviews with people that they meet up in other country, doing things about their TDT audit, about things about their conferences. They always supply us with content every week. They're on the end of the phone. They're on the end of the emails. They're so supportive. And, you know, hopefully that's going to continue because, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily, the you know, an employee of the TDT anymore or, or working on that hub anymore. But I still very much want to be involved in what kind of things they're doing. And if people uh, are interested in that, I'm sure Darren will put links on the podcast. But, you know, get over to TDT uh, Trust org and look at their cpd connect events because there's some great stuff including one with jill berry it's almost like we planned this down it? <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly is I've, I've signed up for that and i'm very much looking forward to to listening to jill i've enjoyed the the cpd i put a tweet out the other day that i, I actually enjoy arriving at the cpd the cpd connect events 10 minutes early just so i can listen to to david's tunes because they're so wonderful 
Well, they were this week. I mean, I, it was. Uh, I think I got galas free from desire, which, as a Wigan supporter, I was still singing Will Griggs on fire. <laughs> yeah, you can, Wigan have definitely adopted that. It's gonna went, it's went wildfire, that song. Really um, anyway, so thank you for that. And, and you mentioned earlier on that you're, you're now a senior leader in a school. So now that you are a senior leader, what are the key differences to your role compared to when you were teaching all day? I love this question, Darren. This is a great question. So in terms of uh, new to senior leadership, so I mean, I was thinking I was going to get the long service medal for how long you can be an assistant head teacher. So I think I'd done 10 years as assistant head across two different schools. And, you know, I was having conversations as people were doing, particularly at the start of this lockdown, actually, you know, people that you hadn't spoken to for a while, you were catching up with and all my peers or head teachers, deputies, etc. Um, and I was kind of like still tootling along as uh, as assistant head teacher. So the teaching question makes me chuckle though because you just you literally can't win can you as a senior leader in this position so the science department at my previous school who may be listening probably not but they may be listening um they kind of (laughs) what's the right word for this they challenged me quite a lot around teaching so i'll I'll just talk to you about briefly about that if that's okay Mm -hmm. so they're kind of a case in point of this. So imagine assistant head. I had loads of different whole school responsibilities. So I was running a hub, helping run a research school. I taught two year 11 classes, a year 10, um, on a three days a week, this, bear in mind. But whenever I'd be preparing the class in the morning, I'd have one of them to stroll past and go, oh, you're here today, are you? You know, you actually teaching then? And you think, yes, yes. And you say, you want to try teaching a full-time table like we have to do? They didn't speak like that, Darren. I don't know why I put that voice on. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> There's lots of senior leaders that, that that don't teach, and you know that's fine. There's lots of good reasons for that. But I've always taught. I continue to teach now. So as a deputy head, I still continue to have a year eleven. I had two year eleven classes at South Shore until, obviously, all that uh, happened happened. So I love teaching. I want to teach. I want to still be in the classroom and and kind of you know as much as you can. It sounds trite to say lead by example. I don't mean you know lead by example in some kind of dead poet society kind of lead by example, but just be in the classroom, be teaching a class and be, you know, accountable and responsible for the progress and, and teaching of, you know, quite, it's quite often, I usually get the, the uh, what's the right phrase for this, the more challenging groups. Mm-hmm. I think that would be fair to say, which I like. But, you know, the, the, the comments at first I used to get, because I did the NQTs and ITTs and they'd say, oh, you wouldn't be able to hack this, you know, teaching all day, every day. It's right for you teaching once a day. And, you know, again, I just thought I don't want to be patronizing in any way. And this might, I hope this doesn't come across patronizing listeners in any way, shape or form. But I did feel like saying and never said I did have to teach every day for 20 years to get to the point where I now teach twice a day. You know, I didn't just ascend to the position of this by teaching once or twice a day. So, you know, it's not really um, very different in terms of teaching. I'm still very much trying to do the teaching as well. I don't think I'll ever stop doing that. Jill Berry, again, I feel like I have the Jill Berry fan club, but she always talked about, you know, she was teaching when she was the head teacher, you know, because it keeps you in touch with the pupils. Mm-hmm. It gives you the credibility with the staff that you can still do these kind of things. And actually, you know, most of us came into this job because that's what we want to do. So it seems a bit silly to stop it. So in terms of the new role, I'm looking at behavior. I'm also the DSL. So it's quite different, but it's, it's been hugely enjoyable so far. It's a great team that I'm working with. So anyway, we'll move on. So how does Naylor's Natter help you in your senior leadership role? 
Right. Well, I mean, I, we kind of alluded to this earlier on. Mm. I just think that, you know, speaking to the caliber and quality of people that we both get to speak to on a weekly basis just sharpens your own sword, doesn't it, to kind of use that Stephen Covey expression. Um, and also, you know, I'm very fortunate now that we're sponsored by John Cat Educational and I get sent the books quite often before the books come out. So, you know, I do I am quite a prolific reader and I do think that, you know, CPD through books is really important. So the first thing is it's the best CPD for me. You know, you must have the same kind of feeling that sometimes you come home after a busy day of work and then it's right, I've got a podcast at seven o'clock and you think, oh, I've got all this other stuff to do. And you sometimes think, oh, and then as soon as you hear that Skype ringtone and the person says hello at the other end of the, of the, of the line and you get met by their enthusiasm, their passion for what they're talking about, it's just brilliant. And I never come out of a conversation feeling anything less than inspired by the person that I've spoken to. So just in terms of how does it help me, it keeps me up to speed up to date with the latest kind of developments that are going on. So if ever I'm in an SLT meeting or, you know, a, a meeting with staff and then someone says, oh, have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? Are you talking about this? And I go, well, yeah, you know, we were, I was fortunate enough to speak to that person yesterday about that or I know about this. So there's that. It also hopefully helps teachers in the school. So it, the books that we get sent, you know, we share those in a staff library and Bernie Kay, who presented one of the podcasts for me when she interviewed Alex Quigley. Um, she's brilliant. She's leading literacy across our school. So she also does the CPD library. So pass those books on and they fly off the shelves. Darren. You know, we get those books into the, into the South Shore library and they go out and they get shared through the staff as well. So hopefully that helps. And also, you know, I'm, I'm getting a bit older now, Darren, you know, it, this kind of thing, it keeps me up to date with latest developments. I, I like, I, you know, I know what's going on. You know, I even know what TikTok is. It's brilliant. So I get to have conversations with people about things. So I think I think if it helps me, I said before, hopefully it helps listeners too. No, it 100% does. It, I, I take something away from, from every guest. In my own podcast, listen to yours and, and listen to, to the other ones like Craig's and, and Rebecca's. It, it's it's really wonderful. The, the amount of stuff that we've got out there available now to to help us in our jobs is, is, is brilliant. So we're going to move move on to this idea of a research school now. Now, please forgive me, in, in Scotland we don't have research schools, although I think there's, there is one that's starting to appear in the, in the southeast. One of my former one of my former schools is starting to look at becoming a research school. So could you could you share with, with the listeners what is a research school and, and how does it differ from an everyday school? Yeah, so in the, in the words of Estelle Morris, uh, the former education secretary, when uh, I started teaching, it's the worst name for initiative ever. So, you know, in terms of being called a research school that doesn't do any research, it's like the opposite of Ron Seal. You know, it doesn't do what it says on the tin. Um, but research schools kind of came out of the education movement for evidence and research practice, obviously, but they are more around disseminating evidence. So research schools was kind of a partnership between the IEE and the EEF. So, you know, so don't, don't ask me to say what all of those are. Education Endowment Foundation and Institute for Effective Education. Way, I got those right. Oh, yes, great. So those two kind of got together to, to put best practice into teachers' hands to start making decisions not based on things that we did before. So one of our kind of early conversations with, with teachers around research schools was, you know, what are you making decisions based on? Are you making it on your own experience, which is valid? Are you making it on your own hunches? Are you making it on what the school down the road does? Are you making it on data? What kind of things are you making it on? And, and Kevin Collins, who was brilliant as the uh, the CEO of the, of the EF, talked about this really eloquently, much more eloquently than I'm going to talk about it, but just around, you know, thinking about evidence-based practice and making decisions based on evidence. So the research schools were kind of born out of that movement. Now, as I said before, we tied that to the, the TDT hub. So we looked at right, what are the whole school priorities, 
how are you deciding what those whole school priorities are? Once you've decided on them, how do you go about, you know, putting that through a CPD program, you know, rather than traditional kind of CPD, which was right, we'll launch an initiative in September, do it for a couple of weeks, forget about it, and then wonder why it hasn't happened in sort of July time. So I put those two together and it was just around trying to get that practice into teachers' hands and, and leaders' hands and try and make those changes to people's practice. So the research school movement has been hugely successful. I mean, the initial, I think there was probably five research school when we started, then there was about 22, 23. And now there's associate research schools and research schools across all of the country, as in England, that is, um, just doing great work, trying to help schools to make, you know, evidence-based decisions. And, you know, I think they're doing a, a fantastic job. We're still in touch with them, even though I'm not directly working with that now. So, Simon Cox, who was working with me, is now working for the EEF as well, as working at, uh, at St. Mary's in the Blackpool Research School. Obviously, Alex Quigley's uh, the National Programs Manager for that as well. So, you know, it, it's the, the job is far from done, but there's a, there's a massive movement, obviously, towards evidence-based practice, and that was started at the research schools. That's wonderful to, to hear, and I think that's something that's perhaps missing in Scotland. Did I say it, this, this idea of evidence into practice? I mean, if I share a little bit about my own journey, I've been teaching for eight years, but I only started reading education literature eight months ago, and it's transformed my teaching, it's transformed my practice, it's transformed my thinking, but that isn't as, as ready available as it perhaps would be in a research school, I'd imagine. As in mm. being given to given to busy teachers to to then use and adapt and share as as, as they need, and it's not part of our of our of our day to day speak, if you like. So it's it's maybe something that we can maybe look into in in Scotland and getting that evidence based research informed practice into schools, so that we can make better decisions that will then improve the outcomes for young people, which is of course the reason why we do everything that we do. Yeah. So, can I on that then, Phil? Is is how important is it that teachers engage with research to maximise their own practice? Um, well, I mean, when we started off, like I said, we did a big speech around right, how do you make decisions and what kind of things do you make decisions based on? And it was quite quite surprising to us in terms of how many decisions, particularly at SLTs, were based around, right, I've heard this in the news, I've seen this on Twitter, the school down the road does this. Or even more importantly, Darren, you know, I did this when I was at school, so that's a rationale for doing it here. And you think, you know, it's lots of education policy, I mean, was kind of built on that. You know, if you look at the movement towards grammar schools, for example, how many education secretaries went to grammar school? Well, all the ones that propose increasing grammar schools usually. I'm not, not against grammar schools or for grammar schools. I'm just offering that as an example of ideology driving practice. So we looked at, right, what is it? that's making people make decisions and how much of it is subjective and how much of it is objective and how close can you get to you know using evidence to make those better decisions so it's not everything and i think tom bennett probably said i think we had it as a quote on one of the slides that we we put out early days in, in, in the research schools you not every decision you make can be based on evidence but if you start to consider it and think about it then hopefully you're going to make better decisions you know, moving forward. So if you're interested in starting with a research journey, that, that there's quite a movement towards that. One of the early shows that we did was Louise Lewis, who's on Twitter. Um, she did a, a, an episode about being a research leader because she's a research leader in her school. And also there's been a movement towards schools deploying ELEs, um, which is, you know, evidence leads in education, where they kind of go out and work with other schools on particular areas of practice. So if you're interested in looking at that, there's, there's lots of people that are doing that kind of work. So, in terms of its importance, like I said, I think it's, it's good for people to be aware of it. 
and there's places that you can go to start your journey. You know, your local research school would be my favorite if you if you if you're in England, um, Twitter possibly if not, and just find out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, so if if I'm a teacher then starting out on a research journey, I want to know more. I want to base my my decisions in my classroom or my practice or my pedagogy based on on what evidence is out there to show to be best practice. Where should I start? Uh, start with a toolkit. So start get yourself down to the EES website and the, the, the kind of the toolkit you were talking about before. And I'm allowed to mention this, Darren. You know your interview with Lee Elliott Major. So he was the one of the authors of the original Sutton Trust toolkit, mm-hmm. uh, which became the EES toolkit, which has been you know used by schools since I'm trying to think now, probably 2013, 14. It's gone back as far as that, where you know each initiative, each kind of idea in school was ranked in terms of its cost, its effectiveness, and the security of the evidence around it. So lots of things were adopted based on that. Lots of things were taken out of schools based on that. Yeah, erroneously, in some cases, I'm sure that Lee mentioned that, you know, the teaching assistants one is a classic, <laughs> um, where the teaching assistants were shown to be high cost for limited effectiveness. Now, obviously, anybody who's worked with a teaching assistant will know that's not correct, you know, particularly in primaries. I spent a lot of time in primaries over the last three years. You know, teaching assistants are essentially integral to the working of primary schools and, you know, arguably to secondary schools as well. But it was a misinterpretation of the research because it said that the high cost for low effectiveness, but it wasn't their effectiveness. It was the way that they were being deployed for example. So they weren't being given specific tasks to do, work with particular pupils, so it was difficult to gauge and measure their effectiveness. So the toolkit is probably a good place to start. It's not everything, but if you look at that and then you can kind of look at the guidance reports, so EEF are prolific at producing high-quality guidance reports on all sorts of different areas. Mm-hmm. So we used to go out and, and, and do launch events for those. So we did some at uh, the Blackpool Research School. We did some other schools, and they were so popular, Darren, so well-attended. People were you know really keen to, to look at the best practice of the literacy reports. Obviously, Alex has written some of those. The metacognition reports, the behavior reports. I mean, I'm a big fan of that one. So Iggy Rhodes, who wrote the behavior guidance report, she did a podcast as well um, with us about that. So if you want to kind of get into evidence-based practice, I would suggest the EGF website, the toolkit, and the guidance reports. Right, thank you. I'd encourage listeners to to go out and and, and have a look and and explore and then you can it allows you then to go further and further into it, so you can find out even more. And for me, it's been, as I said, it's been truly transformative in my in my own teaching practice, and and I would advocate that for anyone. So thank you, Phil, for sharing that. Um, moving back to, to your podcast, you have a feature called Podcast Pedagogy, um, and it's it's a it's a I really enjoy listening to the Podcast Pedagogy feature when you, when you share that. So why did you start that, and and what what sort of things do you usually include? <laughs> you might be on your own though Darren on that one because I did a poll last week on whether that should continue or not now I'm not suggesting that the 45 responses are indicative of the wider <laughs> listenership but it, I don't think people are particularly uh, enjoying that section of it, according to that um, but I mean I, so I kind of wondered what I tried to do is look at right what am I reading this week because like I said before quite a prolific reader education books or novels or other things also, what kind of things am I watching? I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of, I've mentioned Simon Mayo twice, Jill Berry about four times now, but a huge fan of Kermode Mayo's podcast and their film review show. So I thought, well, you know, I, I do watch a lot of films and I'm watching a lot more now um, in the current situation. So I thought, well, maybe include something about that. And I do like music. I do like listening to quite a lot of music. So I thought with busy teachers doing lots and lots of things during the week, working, you know, 50, 60, 70 hour weeks, it's nice to have some outside interest and things you can look at outside of that. So I thought, well, if I'm listening to these things, then perhaps people might be interested in those as well. So the idea of that was 
um, similar to Bex maybe in a way, that we can get listeners to, you know, send in clips. And I, I've been fortunate that you did that for me, Darren, as well, about sending in what are they lead, what are they reading, what are they listening to, what are they watching? And that was kind of the idea at the start. So it's a mixture of what am I listening to, reading or watching, what are listeners doing, and just signposting people to things that might be of interest for them and getting into different areas. So, you know, I, I think it was kind of popular when we were at school, like I said, because people were busy and then it was a nice diversion. But now that things are slightly different, it may be not quite as popular. So it's kind of on the back burner for the moment while we do the double episodes. But, it, it, you know, if people wanted to return, I think one of the particular favourite episodes of people was where I was reviewing um, craft work and doing a, a ham-fisted attempt at uh, copying a German accent while doing home computer. <laughs> so, yeah, if people want to see a welcome return of that then then please create a, a storm on twitter then we'll bring it back but for the moment it's paused no i think i certainly at least more on to my, to my final question interview interview section is is that because of that features on, on books I, I say i really enjoy them i enjoy like like a lot of your music the music you recommend is is very much similar to what i have on my spotify playlist a lot of the books that you're reading are very similar to what i so i i enjoy that and i and I, and, I, and I share in your, your enthusiasm, but why is it important that teachers like switch off after a hard day's work by engaging in some of these things? Well, because I think the danger is then that we, we, we just live and breathe and we all love teaching, but then we have those staff room conversations which just revolve around, you know, what are year nine doing on a Thursday afternoon and that kind of thing. It's nice that, you know, in, in the behaviour office at South Shore, you know, I mean, I've mentioned craft work twice now, but we do often, you know, sing along to Pocket Calculator you know or, or look at various different you know obscure uh, smith's records or whatever it might be so i think it's nice to have outside of interests uh you know that people can talk about but because like i said time is limited i, I like to be if i'm gonna spend my time going to the cinema when you could do that or listen to some music when you obviously can do that anytime or reading a book it's nice to think that it's gonna be worth your while so if somebody else has listened to that or read that or watched that and it has enjoyed it then it's useful to share those recommendations with other people. And, and like I said about the, the Kermode and Mayo film review, I mean, I listen to that every single week and I based my kind of watches and listens on what kind of things they recommend. So if we can do that in a smaller way, then great. Hopefully, like I said, hopefully we'll bring it back. Um, but just at the moment, uh, the, in the words of David Dimbleby, you know, the people have spoken and, and we're out. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I hope it comes back. I'll, I'll certainly, next time you have a vote, I'll certainly try and muster up some, some enthusiasm and bring that back. So that brings us to the end of, of our interview section, Phil, before I move on to the final three. But before I do that, can you can you share a little bit about where listeners can find out more about you if they haven't, where they can find your podcast and um, any other things that you're doing or, or want to share? Yeah, so I mean, it's at uh, PNA1977 on Twitter, which is not the snappiest handle you're ever going to get. And there's quite a few people with a 77 at the back. It must have been a vintage year, 1977, for for educationalists. Um, so that's where you can find that. I've got uh, nailersnatter.co.uk is the website. And we're on goodness knows how many different platforms now uh, with that. So yeah, you can find it find it pretty much everywhere in terms of what's coming up if you're interested darren with uh with, with the podcast so a bit of an exclusive for you now so we're going to try um and i think i can reveal this now so we're going to try and move we're moving into america as well darren mm-hmm. we're going to be with our john cat tie up we're mm-hmm. going to do a, a version of the podcast um which is going to be slightly different name so that we can run this one past you and your listeners and see what you think so we're going to we're going to go for the john cat chat 
I think that's that's going to be our um, sort of American spin-off, mm-hmm. just to kind of look at because John Cat obviously over in America as well with lots of uh, authors there. So I've been in touch with a few sort of authors in North America and Canada in the last week or so just around some of the books that they're talking about. So we're going to produce a version of the podcast to go over and kind of talk to uh, educators in other parts of the world as well. Hopefully we're going to well we are going to continue with the Nailers Natter. I'm really interested in the idea of kind of diversifying our listenership and diversifying our thoughts because you know it's really important that working with this stable of interviews like i said before that we represent the teaching profession you know i'm just one teacher out of you know hundreds and thousands of teachers so we're going to continue to interview guests on their books we're going to have you know one or two interviews and other people but we're going to also have a wider range of interviewers spreading out the team and they're going to go and source their own interviews and find out what kind of people interest them um, and kind of spread that a little bit further, a little bit wider. So hopefully there'll be something for everybody in Nailers Natter in the future. That sounds wonderful. And I'm so super excited about you, about you, the John Cat chat in America. I've got, I've actually got some friends who happen to be teachers in America. So I'm going to be, oh, I'm, yeah. this, I'm, is, this, this is fantastic. You could join me, Darren. You can do a joint. <laughs> We can do John Cat chat together. Well, I would love to. I would love to. If you if you want to get me involved, I would I would more than happily do that. So thank you very much, Phil. And and I would encourage any listener that hasn't done so already to to get their head out from under a rock and get involved and listen to Nailers Natter and, and the back catalogue that you've got is is truly wonderful and, and some of the guests that you've got on and their insights is just amazing. So thank you, Phil. So now on to the to the final three, Phil. I ask this questions of every guest I've had. It's my it's my stock items. So question number one is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? Right, so obviously I know that you do this because I listen regularly, so I was ready for this. Uh, not as snappy as some guest answers, but I'm going to go through them anyway. So without a doubt, this has got to be Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion. Um, so from the moment this came out, I carried this around under my arm and talked about it with every single person that I saw. Um, when I was put in charge of ITTs and NQTs, we built our entire induction program around Teach Like a Champion. So there's a generation of teachers out there who may or may not be listening that came through Blackpool that that, that stand in Pastore's perch, they cold call and they check for understanding and they do all of those kind of things. So um, in terms of you know reading, I, 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 kind of, I am quite a keen reader now, but without going into this, as a child of kind of working class parents, there wasn't a lot of reading necessarily that we used to. We didn't really, certainly didn't read much literature, watch many films, or even listen to uh, to much music. Well, unless you count Cliff Richard, but I, I don't really. So as an adult, I've kind of you know really devoured books. And uh, if I can mention another one, Darren, I'm a huge, huge Orwell fan. I've mentioned that on the podcast quite a few times. And I don't mean by that that I've read Animal Farm in 1984, because I think that obviously most people have read that. But I've read everything from A Clergyman's Daughter, Berta Burmese Days, from his essays to his newspaper articles, and at least four biographies are sitting on the bookshelf, which I should be sat in front of, shouldn't I, to prove. Um, (laughs) We even, even have a portrait of the great man on the wall, which freaks out the children, let me tell you. They really don't, oh, what what is that? Wow. Yeah, so um, I think that in terms of education books, it's got to be, Teach like a champion, and in terms of anything else, it's all well all the way. Brilliant! Thank you so much for for sharing that, and I can just I can just imagine that lovely picture scaring the children. So my second question to you, Phil, is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Well, first of all, don't listen to any advice that I give you. I think will be the, the first bit of advice. Um, listen to the Becoming Educated podcast, of course. Is uh, you know 
good advice to anybody and all the podcasts that are out there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote sunscreen and then I'm going to give you a quick story. Have you got time for this, Darren? Of course I do. Excellent. So it's um, it's the Baz Luhrmann sunscreen song, which said, be careful about whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. So, you know, I'm going to set the scene for you. So this is the early 2000s, um, <laughs> and uh, I am one of the young, dare I say, cool teachers. And and if listeners have been rediscovering any programs on um, kind of streaming sites, so on Channel 4, there's the, uh, the the kind of old teaching program, which is called Teachers, if people remember that. Love that. So, well, that that was us when we started teaching in the early 2000s. It's, it's so accurate. And watching it back now, it makes it even more so. So it was very much like that. And we were hugely progressive in terms of our attitudes at the time, not knocking that. So we did a lot of group work. You know, I was the guide on the side quite a lot. You know, project-based learning, AFL gimmicks, you name it. Anyway, the, the bit of advice I'm going to give is that you sometimes it's worth listening to that old teacher in the staff room that everybody else ignores. So if I can mention names, because I don't think he'll be listening, but I think he is he's definitely is still around. So Michael Summers is the teacher from uh, when we were working at um, I think it was St. Hilda's at the time. And Michael blindsided me at 4 p.m. on an idle Tuesday, as the song goes, to take me into his confidence. Um, and he said to me, all this stuff that you're doing, it'll go away and it'll all come round again. You mark my words. And, and the reason that this stuck with me was the structure of Michael's lessons at the time. So imagine that we are like the sitcom, if you can describe it as a sitcom, like the program teachers, it's progressive. So this is Michael's lessons in the early 2000s. Recap quiz. So 10 questions every lesson on what we'd learned recently. He was an expert geographer and he knew his stuff. He spent a good portion of his lesson talking and it's hard to overstate to listeners just how unfashionable that was at the time. He used textbooks. I mean, God, blimey, how we laughed. And he had the, the highest of behavior standards, not quite zero tolerance, but nobody was sent out. He contacted home, he did his own detentions, he followed up, he followed through. The kids absolutely loved him. And we thought he was ancient at the time, Darren. You know, he was in his late 40s. I might be doing him a disservice if he is listening. And we just couldn't understand of it. Of course, we were all young, we knew better, but it always stays with me. So the one bit of advice is, you know, that old teacher in the staff room, which is becoming me rapidly, by the way, sometimes is worth listening to. And you might not understand how important is at the time but it'll certainly catch up with you later no i can i can certainly emphasize that and i think mr summers's lessons would echo with what best practice looks like today <laughs> definitely what we're advocating for so so thank you for that and i, and I loved how you've mentioned about about teachers i know that andrew lincoln is, is famous for his for his part in the weekend dead but i think for me it'll always be simon casey i just love oh, definitely. absolutely love teachers Okay, so uh, just uh, like to thank you very much, Phil, for giving up your time. Where listeners maybe don't know, but we recorded this at eight o'clock in the morning on a on a beautiful sunny Friday. So thank you so much for all the work you do with with Nailers Natter, and thanks so so much for for giving me your time today to to chat with me for the Becoming an Educated Pat podcast. I really do appreciate it. No, no, and it's thank you from me, Darren. Thank you for a few things. So thank you for everything that you're doing in terms of your podcast. You know, we love your podcast at Nail with Nat and we always listen. Um, in fact, I've just been listening out on the cycle ride, which is the reason that we're having to do this eight o'clock in the morning, listeners. And again, people probably sympathize with this. I've now got back-to-back Teams meetings until about two o'clock this afternoon while I stare out of the window at St. Anne's, you know, while it's blazing 24 degrees sunshine and I'm sat inside on Teams. So thanks, Darren, for getting up early, working it around your schedule and thanks for everything that you're doing with the podcast it's absolutely fantastic long may it continue thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast 
Until next time. Teach with joy.